Hey folks, Brian here. I just want to thank you guys for listening and also contributing to the show in your various ways, whether it be through emails or likes and follows or reviews or in some cases uh, monetary donations. I want to thank each and every one of you. You guys are the inspiration for me keeping this going. So let's keep right on rolling into 2021. Later. episode number 37 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, let's see, when last we, last we left off last month, uh, just been working and doing home care as usual. I did go to the arcade in Brighton last week. I took my godson up there, like I said that I would, in uh, episode 36. Um, he wasn't feeling too well, and he begged off after about being there for about an hour and a half. Um, I There wasn't too much going on. I had done too many things on Friday and uh, that Saturday before we went up there. So I was really tired, and so I wasn't on my game as I normally am, and it just was an average day at the arcade. I mean, I was happy that they fixed their Robotron machine and, you know, played some Star Wars, played some Asteroids. I kind of figured it was going to be an average humdrum day when the best I could do at Asteroids was like 13,000. I played Missile Command. I got to 6X. I think I scored like 30-something thousand points or something. Um, That's the first time I played an actual missile command machine in years but you know I figure I gotta broaden my palette when I'm there and not just focus on the games that I want to play and you know play just more games it's not like (laughs) I have to spend money to play them or I spent money walking in the door um so yeah like I said nothing to write home about painfully average day um let's see since then oh, oh that's right um The week before, I went up to the uh, Pinball Arcade in Frasier, and I don't remember if I said anything about it when I recorded episode 36. (laughs) I probably should go back and listen to that, but I'm just going to plow ahead anyway. Um, Yeah, so I went up there, and, you know, it was okay. I mean, I went up there close to closing. It was like you know, 10 o'clock at night by the time I got there, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, it was not a bad place, not a bad place at all. You know, nice, 
mix of classic arcade games. They have a working baby Pac-Man, which was cool, you know, although it's not functioning 100%. Uh, the middle uh, drop target is um, doesn't work properly, and to seriously, you know, get points into also get your power pellets you need the drop targets working correctly as a matter of fact another two more drop targets weren't working on that machine but not bad i mean i saw a hercules pinball machine there and i wanted to play it but i couldn't figure out how to get a credit into it um and it was at the end of the night and i was already tired so i just left it off and if i ever d decide to go back up there I'll certainly play it, but I haven't seen a working Hercules machine since the early 80s. And just to see one there in its glory, I mean, it's one of those um, massive oversized pinball machines that they made uh, in the early 80s, late 70s. Um, they made like, oh goodness, I think they made like four or five of them. I know Atari did one. And I know that uh, a couple of the other manufacturers made one, but that was pretty cool. Um, I should have taken pictures. <laughs> you know, I just wasn't thinking. I was just more into playing. I mean, I played yeah, Baby Pac-Man, Donkey Kong. Um, they had a Hyperspeed Pac-Man, which I played. I got to, what, the fourth key on that, which is actually a pretty decent uh, accomplishment considering I haven't played a Pac-Man machine in hyperspeed yet, and I did that well. I was pretty impressed with it, but yeah. Um, let's see, what else? Eh, played, a, you know, played some pinball here and there. You know, they have, you know, the usual suspects of modern-day Stern machines and other stuff, but yeah, it's a nice place. It just takes an hour to get there and an hour to get home, so, you know... I'm not exactly inclined to go up there on a lark. Only I'll go up there if I really, really want to go up there. Um, as I found out, there are a couple of places here in the Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area that I need to check out. I mean, one's right on the main drag through downtown uh, Ypsilanti, and I'm going to check that place out as soon as possible. Um, I drove by there after work and found out its location and you know the, the place was closed but they had the lights on so I was able to look inside there and yeah it was pretty cool um, the pictures that I saw on the Google page for the place were really promising so I'm definitely gonna check that place out it may have to wait until uh, not this Friday, but the following Friday, like first Friday in uh, April, because apparently I'm going to have that day off. Um, I don't know how it works out with my uh, with my job, but I think I get paid time off every so often, and I think I rack up the time to get that day off really quickly because I work six days a week. Um, but either way, that's neither here nor there. Um, Let's see, what else is doing? Uh, oh, that's right. I bought um, two games off of Steam. Uh, the first one was um, the uh, retro the retro wrestling game, like the sequel to um, WWF WrestleFest. 
Um, I got into that a little bit. Um, the game is a lot harder than the arcade ever was, and I need to devote some serious time to playing it. But it plays one hundred, almost one hundred percent, just like uh... <clears throat> edit, um, just like um, Wrestlefest. Um, the same uh, animations, but there are also other animations. Uh, thrown in. Uh, you can actually whip your opponent into the turnbuckles on diagonals, which is actually pretty interesting. But yeah, it's looking like a really good game. And the other game I bought was Project Wingman. I put that on my wish list sometime last year, um, and I wasn't able to purchase it until now. You know, thank goodness for stimulus. Uh, especially once I got all my bills paid and everything, and I could actually clear the funds to buy these games, because they were both right around 30 bucks each. Um, Project Wingman is an uh, flight simulator uh, arcade uh, flight game. Um, as I play it, I find myself being reminded more and more of Ace Combat for the uh, PlayStation 2. Like, you know, Ace Combat 4, Ace Combat 5, Ace Combat 6, you know, all those in uh, that space of time. The controls are almost identical. Um, I wish I could customize them a little more because there are certain things that I just don't want to use that I find useless. Um, what else? And it's a lot of fun. You know, I'm having fun going through the missions and buying aircraft and, you know, just blowing stuff up it's actually kind of cathartic in a way stress relief right um so yeah that's pretty much what i've been doing uh, i did check the uh emails and voicemails still nothing so once again i'm going to implore you guys um if you have a game that you want me to cover or give my opinions on um if you have any questions about anything you've heard in the last 36 episodes you know, anything like that, any sort of, you know, critiques or anything along those lines, as long as you do it civilly, uh, you can get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there is a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Oh, by the way, if you do decide to call that, remember, you have a three-minute time limit. I still don't understand why Google does that, but there it is. Um, let's see. We, I'm also on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. On Facebook, just do a search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. Uh, there is a group discussion uh, page that's linked to that. And, you know, if you want to get a hold of me directly, I do check Facebook multiple times per day. Um, and I'm usually checking the page because I get, you know, views in the occasional follow which is pretty decent and you know I'm also checking the other um, arcade um, pages that I'm also uh, following so I'm on there constantly um, let's see uh, my Twitter handle is at uh, arcade addict underscore B on Instagram I am uh, arcade Addict Brian and Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash confessions of an arcade addict. So you have multiple ways of getting hold of the show. 
And, you know, like I keep telling you guys, I'm a little bit lonely up here, you know, just jibber-jabbing into a microphone. So, you know, if you guys have any questions or thoughts or comments, hey, as long as you're nice about it, let me have it. Okay, so let's get on with the show. I've got quite a bit to talk about, and let's get right into it. Top 10s. Top 10s. Top 10 NES games. Okay, this list wasn't too hard uh, to comprise because I've had a lot of experiences with this system, even though I didn't have that many at first, you know, in 1985 when the NES came out. Um, as the years went by, you know, 87, 88, 89, 90, you know, almost right up to and just past when the Super Nintendo came out in 1991, you know, I was at the Nintendo kiosk playing games by myself and with other people, and especially when I got a job there, you know, I was selling these games and people were buying them, of course. Um, the majority of my time is uh, playing games on this was at um, friends' houses and, of course, the Nintendo kiosk, as I just said. So let's see. Like I said, these are in no particular order, and I know there are going to be some people who are not going to be happy because I left rather quote-unquote obvious games um, off this list. Uh, most of them I wasn't too fond of, um, or I never actually got a chance to play some of them. So I go with what I actually played and what I actually liked. Sue me. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see, first one. Of course I'm going to start here, because this is one of my all-time favorite uh, NES games, Baseball Stars. Um, I've talked about this game a thousand times throughout the previous 36 episodes. Um, I spent a huge amount of time on this game, and when I was you know, talking about uh, friendly competition, and I think it's episode 21, um myself and like five other guys would create teams and we would battle it out tournament style over the space of several months actually um we would raid each other's teams and steal players when we were playing each other we talk all kinds of junk to each other and we were kind of loud and kind of obnoxious um this was right near one of the main entrances in the mall and it was right up against the facing wall of uh, one of the major department stores, Reed's. So, yeah, I mean, um, and that whole area was fairly open, and, you know, any noise you made would echo like crazy throughout the hall. So, yeah, there were a couple of times security would come by and say, hey, guys, tone it down, you know, things like that. But, yeah, I mean, um, I still play this game, uh, every so often in emulation, and I still have a lot of fun with it, you know, once you've uh, built up your team enough to compete with the teams that are uh, ready-made on the um, on the, uh, on the the cartridge. I mean, once you max out one team, you build another one, and then you have a league, uh, excuse me, uh, tournament play with the team that you're creating and the team you've already created and some ready-made teams and things get interesting, let's say. Because now you have the challenge of trying to beat the team that you just built up to the max and 
the pitchers are all great and the hitters all are monsters at the plate and so forth and so on but yeah i mean it's a fun game and the replay value is actually pretty high if you're really into it but anyway that's baseball stars uh final fantasy i mean what more needs to be said this is the one that launched the franchise and set the standard for turn-based rpgs for years you know i mean the first one i actually watched i used to watch my roommate play it and then i started playing it i think i got maybe about a third of the way through the game before something else came out and caught my attention but yeah i mean it's final fantasy it's a great game and you only have to look at what it what it's gone to now i mean the uh final fantasy 7 remake uh was i think a moderate success it wasn't i don't think it was the huge success that square was hoping for but you know then of course you got like final fantasy 14 i actually watched uh one of my one of streamers i follow uh playing that today and you know, just watching him play through it you know it's kind of fun but yeah i mean this was the originator you know this is what really kicked things off for square you know starting in the middle to late 80s and you know continuing on to the present day okay uh nes baseball this is one of the original titles uh that was released alongside of the actual game system and i mean like i've said in a couple of episodes um when i talked about the versus system or games on the versus system um I was seriously hooked on this game. I mean, it's not even funny. I mean, I was borderline obsessed with it um, because it was, it's a fun baseball game, even though it can be frustrating. And just like with most of the baseball games that were coming out, that were coming from Japan, they could be horrifically cheap, you know, and it was a frustrating uh time sometimes but i would constantly be pumping quarters into it and uh the versus system game was point based meaning that when you put a quarter in and you started the game um depending on the uh, difficulty level um the average i think was like 200 points and you would gain points for uh striking people out um and things like things of that nature um, of course, when you're on offense, you got points for um, scoring runs, stealing bases, and things like that. It was actually really, really interesting. And you had to be really good at placing your player so that you, when the pitch came to you, you could get your bat on it and you know get a base hit or even, dare I say, get a home run. Um, but yeah, it was a frustrating game. It really was. And it was no less frustrating on the NES, but I still came back to it whenever I could. Um, World Championship Wrestling. Uh, this one was another game I played a lot at the Nintendo kiosk. Um, it had all the current superstars of the National Wrestling Alliance, uh, going from the Nature Boy Ric Flair to Sting, uh, all the way to the Awesome Road Warriors. Um, I loved this game. I had fun playing it solo. I had fun playing it with other people. Uh, the game was far from perfect, but this was one of the also, uh, along with uh, pro wrestling, 
uh, this was one of the games that actually had uh, the um, finishing moves. You know, like with uh, the Road Warriors, uh, Road Warrior Animal, uh, when you would pick up your opponent, you would hit the A and B button at the same time, and he would get his uh, finishing uh, finishing maneuver, which was basically a power slam. He would whip you into the ropes, and then he would just catch you, catch you, turn, use your momentum, turn in midair, and just do a power slam. Uh, like Road Warrior Hawk had the um, the running clothesline. Ric Flair, of course, had the um, figure four leg lock. Uh, Sting, of course, had the scorpion death lock, and so forth and so on. Um, but yeah, it was a great game. It was one of the better wrestling games for the Nintendo. Um, there are others, but they were really frustrating games. But anyway, um, NES Tennis. Uh, this was another one I used to play on the Versus system in the arcade, and I you, I love playing it on the NES. Um, it was exact, the exact same game as the one in the arcades, so I kind of knew what to do and how to play the game, but yeah, it was... It could get really frustrating sometimes, you know, but then again, most of these games did. And speaking of frustrating wrestling games, Tecmo World Wrestling. Um... I like this one because the gameplay was good, had a good variety of moves, actual finishing moves, just like WCW did, and you actually had a commentator that calls out the moves as they're executed. Of course it was in text, it wasn't in voice, but it still added to the ambiance of the game. And no, it was a really hard game. <laughs> I didn't get very far in this game at all. Uh, let's see. NES Open Tournament Golf. Um, this was like... I think this was the sequel to the first golf game that was released. That was another game I was obsessed with back in 1984. Um, but yeah, this one ha was much more involved. Um, it was really complex when you compare it to, the, with, to its predecessor. But Mario Golf, which came out... Oh goodness, I want to say like... Two or three years after this... Um, you know, that one was even more complex. Um, oh goodness, who was I watching play that on stream? I want to say it was, um, oh goodness, now I can't even remember his name. But, um, yeah, he, he was actually playing Mar Mario Golf in, like, story mode. And it was actually fun to watch. And, the you know, he, as he got towards the end of the game, you know, the margin for error became smaller and smaller and smaller. It was crazy towards the end, but yeah. That was an interesting game to watch and play. Uh, let's see. Kung Fu. This is the uh, Nintendo uh, release of uh, Kung Fu Master. I mean, it was a really good translation. I mean, you had pretty much everything, but it required you to play it differently than the arcade version. Uh, the hitboxes, of course, were a lot smaller. And when you thought you hit somebody, they would sneak inside and grab a hold of you and drain your energy. It was a little frustrating, but not a bad translation all in all. Let's see. Bases Loaded 2. Um, this game, I remember uh, playing against uh, Mark whenever I went over his house. In the middle, to, no, I'd say probably the late 80s. You know, yeah, I would say probably late 80s. Um, this is one of the best baseball games of the uh, entire run of the NES. Um, it was 
you could get as strategic as you wanted to. Um, the action was great. Uh, the drama level could raise at any moment because you never quite knew when your pitcher was going to get tired and start throwing hittable pitches to the opposition, which of course meant you were in danger of being scored upon, of course. But yeah, I mean, it was also the first game that had the um, over the pitcher's shoulder center field camera point of view. It wasn't, you know, top down or, you know, top down behind the pitcher like uh, most uh, baseball games were of that era. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun. Uh, Mike Tyson's punch out. I mean, not much needs to be said about this game either. Um, although I was f proud of myself when I finally beat Mike Tyson to, to end the game. And then, of course, I turn around and I see these guys on Twitch who have all these um, really, really intricate strategies on how to get through the game and speed running at the same time. And, you know, it's awesome to watch. I mean, I thank Zallard1 for introducing me to this little uh, subgenre, if you will. Uh, the tournaments happen on Twitch, like, I want to say, like, every like month or every other month or something like that and it's, you know the usual suspects and they all get together and you know they have these little tournaments it's it's kind of interesting to watch uh let's see honorable mentions uh let's see rad racer chippendales rescue rangers tecmo super bowl uh gradius uh bad news baseball dig dug 2 uh excite bike Double Dribble, <laughs> you thought I was leaving that off, didn't you? Um, Kings of the Beach and Pro Wrestling. Um, each of all these games that I just mentioned, uh, I played, with the exception of um, Excitebike, all these games I played at the uh, Nintendo kiosk um, by myself, with other people, that kind of thing. And, you know, the NES was a great system, you know, as quote-unquote primitive as some people want to make it but it's still you know a really good you know gaming thing i mean you can't go wrong if you make over 700 games for the system let's just put it that way um all right if you got any thoughts questions um any games that you think should be on this list hey get a hold of me arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com okay let's go on to are you experienced I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Hobie, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying wet arse to my head or chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not gonna buy a hemorrhoid cushion. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced, Frogger? Uh, this game was requested for me to do a uh, review on by my podcast co-host over at Thaco's Hammer, his uh, screen name is Full On Gamer. Uh, I've been doing a podcast with him for 10 years, and, you know, we talked about stuff, you know, relating to second edition Dungeons and & Dragons and everything else that we've talked about through the years, and we were 
BSing one day before we start we're recording a an episode of Thaco's Hammer and, and I was talking about my uh, talking about the podcast and you know how I was doing with it and talking about the games that I've talked you know that I've reviewed I'm trying to remember when this happened this was I think my episode count was somewhere in the late teens to early 20s and Fallon basically said do Frogger and I'm like okay done <laughs> I could do that um okay so let's get on with it uh and I'm of course you know using Wikipedia as a source once again so here we go uh, Frogger is a 1981 arcade game developed by Konami and manufactured by Sega. I did not know, and I should have known, by the um, way the game is designed and the fonts for the words and numbers, I should have known it was uh, Konami who did this, but I didn't put two and two together. Um, let's see. In North America, it was published jointly by Sega and Gremlin Industries. The object of the game is to direct frogs to their homes one by one by crossing a busy road and navigating a river full of hazards. Frogger was positively received as one of the greatest video games ever made and was followed by several clones and sequels. By 2005, Frogger, in its various home video game incarnations, had sold 20 million copies worldwide, including 5 million in the United States. The game found its way into popular culture, including television and music. Let's see, the gameplay. The objective of the game is to guide a frog to each of the empty frog homes at the top of the screen. The game starts with three, five, or seven frogs, depending on the settings used by the operator. Losing them all ends the game. The only player control is a four-direction joystick used to navigate the frog. Each push in a direction causes the frog to hop once in that direction. Frogger is either single player or two players alternating. The frog starts at the bottom of the screen, which contains a horizontal road occupied by cars, trucks, and bulldozers speeding along it. The player must guide the frog between the opposing lanes of traffic to avoid becoming roadkill, which results in loss of a life. After the road, there is a median strip separating the two major parts of the screen. The upper portion of the screen consists of a river with logs, alligators, and turtles, all moving horizontally across the screen. By jumping on swiftly moving logs and the backs of turtles and alligators, the player can guide their frog to safety. The player must avoid snakes, otters, and the open mouths of alligators. A brightly colored female frog is sometimes on a log and may be carried for bonus points. The top of the screen contains five frog homes, which are the destinations for each frog. Sometimes these contain insects, which is good, and lurking alligators, which is bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? The game's opening tune is the first verse of a Japanese children's song called Inu no Omarwari-san, or The Dog Policeman. Other Japanese tunes that are played during gameplay include the themes to the anime Hano no Ko Lunun and Rascal the Raccoon. The American release kept the opening song intact and added Yankee Doodle. Softline in 1982 stated that Frogger has earned the ominous distinction of being the arcade game with the most ways to die. There are many different ways to lose a life, illustrated by a skull and crossbones symbol where the frog was, uh, including being hit or running into a road vehicle, jumping into the river's water, running into snakes, otters or an alligator's jaws in the river, jumping into a home invaded by an alligator, staying on top of a diving turtle af after it's completely submerged, 
riding a log, alligator, or turtle off the side of the screen, jumping into a home already occupied by a frog, jumping into the side of a home or the bush, or running out of time. Whew, that is a lot, oh, a lot of ways to die. Um, when all, frog, all five frogs are in their homes, the game progresses to the next level with increased difficulty. After five levels, the game gets briefly easier before yet again getting progressively harder after each level. The player has 30 seconds to guide each frog into one of the homes. This timer resets when a life is lost or a frog reaches home safely. Uh, scoring is as follows. Each forward step scores 10 points. Each frog arriving safely home scores 50 points. 10 points are also awarded for each unused half second of time. Guiding a lady frog home or eating a fly scores 200 points each, and when all five frogs reach home to end the level, the player earns 1,000 points. A single bonus frog is at 20,000 points. Uh, 99,990 points is the maximum high score that can be achieved on an original arcade cabinet. Players may exceed this score, but the game only keeps the last five digits. Let's see, the development and release. This is an, actually an interesting story. Check this out. Uh, the game was originally developed by Konami. On July 22, 1981, Sega gained the exclusive rights to manufacture the game worldwide. Sega Gremlin was skeptical about Frogger's earning potential. This was because no other company licensed the game. Also, an earlier game called Frogs that was developed in-house that also involved frogs had flopped. It was believed that Eliminator would be their next big hit. Elizabeth Falconer, a market researcher at Sega Gremlin, was tasked by Frank Fogelman, the founder of Gremlin, to check Gremlin's library of video presentations to see if there was anything worth licensing. It was here that Falconer stumbled across Frogger. Falconer asked her bosses if the game had been reviewed, and it was here she learned that Gremlin was not willing to take a chance on the game because they felt that its basic gameplay and cute presentation would not make the game sell well. Despite this, Falconer thought the game deserved a chance and request a licensing window of about 90 days so that some prototypes could be play-tested. She was told that her request would be granted if she could convince Gremlin's management. When she met with executives from Paramount, a company owned by the same company that owned Sega Gremlin, Falconer opened by passing out booklets that highlighted Frogger's gameplay and sales potential. One of the executives, Jack Cameron Gordon, tossed the booklet back and stated that Frogger had already, already been rejected because it was a women and kids game. Falconer replied that speculating that the executives were also among those who turned down Pac-Man, a comment that made the room go quiet. Wow! That's what you call a clapback, folks. Uh, after seeing the deflation and resistance, Falcon, Falconer went on to explain why Frogger was appealing. The game plays easily memorizable patterns, the game's aesthetic attractiveness, and its catchy soundtrack were some of the reasons that she used. She ended with a simple request, the opportunity to playtest a prototype to gauge player reactions. The room went quiet until one of the executives relented and told the group to, quote, let her have her goddamn kids game, end quote. <laughs> wow. Um, Sega Gremlin agreed to pay Konami $3,500 a day for a 60-day licensing window. When the EPROMs for Frogger arrived from Japan and Falconer retrieved them, Gremlin's engineering department took them and used them to create a prototype for Frogger. Once it was completed, the prototype was taken to a bar in San Diego called Spanky's Saloon, where it was play-tested by a mostly male audience. Gremlin, Gremlin agreed to commit to Frogger if the game tested well at the bar.
Gremlin's sales team was impressed by the amount of tension the game was getting, and it was all Sega Gremlin needed to convince the buyers at the AMOA show in October 1981. Distributors were sold on Frogger based on its test run at Spanky's alone. Wow. On the subject to appealing to a broader player base at the time of Frogger's release, Jack Gordon, the director of video game sales at Sega Gremlin, noticed that women shied away from the shoot-em-ups on the market and that games like Frogger filled the void. You would think that they would know this by how Ms. Pac-Man came out. I think Ms. Pac-Man came out just before this. Um, I could be wrong about that. Um, I would have to go back and check, and you know what? Let me pause this right now, and let me find out. So, hang in there, folks. I'll be back. Okay, I'm back. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Um, looking at Wikipedia, they say that Ms. Pac-Man came out in February of 1982, a date I still dispute to this day. I think it came out in, like, the winter of 1981. I'd say probably... November or December of 81. Um, I don't know how, but it did. I mean, I will go to my grave saying that. Um, but either way, it doesn't matter. But, so, either way, Frogger came out before Ms. Pac-Man, if I have my dates correct and my memory serves me correctly. So, yeah, they would have no idea about this. Um, but they had the same thing go on with Centipede, uh, which was a game designed by a female programmer, and, you know, the colors and everything like that, you know, made that game very, very popular, especially with females. There was a niche to be filled there, and yeah, games like Ms. Pac-Man and Frogger and Centipede filled that niche, because yeah, not too many female game players back in the 80s, and there weren't many, because golly knows I hung out at arcades all the time, but not too many female gamers were into the uh, shoot-em-ups, like, you know, say, like Asteroids and Missile Command and games like that, so it only makes sense. But anyway, let's continue, let's continue with the story, if you will. Uh, let's see, let's go to the ports. Frogger was ported to many contemporary home systems. Several platforms were capable of, of accepting both ROM cartridges and magnetic media, so systems such as the Commodore 64 received multiple versions of the game. Sierra Online gained the magnetic media rights and sublicensed them to developers who published for systems not normally supported by Sierra. Cornsoft published the official TSR-80 slash Dragon32 uh, Timex Sinclair 1000 and, and Timex Sinclair 2068 ports. Because of that, even the Atari 2600 received multiple releases. A cartridge and a cassette for the Supercharger. That's right, I forgot about that. They did re release that on the Supercharger. Wow. Um, Sierra released disc and or tape ports for the Commodore 64, Apple II, and the original 128K Macintosh. Uh, the IBM PC... Atari 2600 Supercharger, as well as cartridge versions for the TRS-80 color computer. Parker Brothers received the license from Sega for cartridge versions and produced cartridge ports of Frogger for the Atari 2600, uh, Intellivision, Atari 5200, ColecoVision, Atari 8-Bit Family, TI-99-4A, VIC-20, and Commodore 64. 
Parker Brothers spent $10 million on advertising Frogger and sold 3 million, 3 million cartridges. It was the company's most successful first-year project, beating the sales and revenues of its previous bestseller, Merlin. Coleco released standalone mini arcade tabletops for Frogger, which along with Pac-Man, Galaxian, and Donkey Kong sold 3 million units combined. And on a side note of that, those Coleco mini arcades, there's a guy on uh, Facebook called, uh, his name is Neil Henry, and he has a group called Old Made New, and he actually takes these mini arcades, and depending on what the uh, customer wants, because he actually remakes these things by hand, he takes out all the electronics of the old mini arcades, and he puts in, like, Raspberry Pis, and um, small uh, LCD screens, and redoes the control panel so he could play games as uh, simple to play as Pac-Man, or you could go all the way up to, like, oh, goodness, I've seen a Tron remake he's done, which is beautiful, by the way. I think he's actually done a Defender machine, you know, with the control layout. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, this guy is a creative genius it's awesome you know to see the various games he's done i mean i've seen berserk i've seen frenzy uh i've seen galaga i've seen oh just almost any classic arcade game he's done it i mean he charges a fairly high price for you know for doing this but it's a you know it's a, actually a pretty uh pretty lucrative market for him <laughs> so you know it's not bad Let's see, uh, the game's uh, reception. Uh, Frogger was seen as a game that had no age or gender barrier with its appeal. Its success resulted in production of the title Stepping Up. Ed Driscoll reviewed the Atari VCS version of Frogger in the Space Gamer episode, or not episode, issue number 58. Driscoll commented that, quote, All in all, if you like the arcade version, this should save you a lot of quarters. The price is in line with most cartridges. It also proves that Atari isn't the only one making home versions of the major arcade games for the VCS, end quote. Danny Goodman of Creative Computing Video and Arcade Games wrote in 1983 that the Atari 2600 version of Frogger is, quote, one of the most detailed translations I have seen, end quote, noticed, noting the addition of a wraparound screen. In 2013, Entertainment Weekly named Frogger as one of the top 10 games for the Atari 2600. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I can't disagree with any of that. Uh, let's do popular culture really quick, because there are some things that I'm pretty sure I'll get yelled at if I don't mention. Uh, let's see. In 1983, Frogger made its animated television debut as a segment on CBS's Saturday Super Cake cartoon lineup. Frogger, voiced by Bob Sarlat, worked as an investigative reporter. Yeah, I remember that. In the 1998 Seinfeld episode, The Frogger, Jerry and George visit a soon-to-be-closed pizzeria they frequented as teenagers and discovered the Frogger machine still in place with George's decade-old high score still recorded. Frogger appears in the films Wreck-It Ralph, Pixels, and Ralph Breaks the Internet. I've seen Wreck-It Ralph and Ralph Breaks the Internet, and yeah, <laughs> you know, all the callbacks are just fantastic. Pixels I've seen, and I wasn't impressed, aside from the graphics, of course, but I digress. In 2006, a group in Austin, Texas used a modified Roomba dressed as Frogger to play a real-life version of the game. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, in the realm of science, Frogger is the name given to a 
transposin or a jumping gene family in the fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster. I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, in 2008, the city of Melbourne created a spin-off called Grogger as a part of a public service campaign to encourage people to take safe transportation home after a night of drinking. <laughs> yeah, I can get that. Uh, let's see. Konami announced that a Frogger game show is in production for Peacock. It's being produced by Konami Cross Media of New York and Eureka Productions. People can currently sign up to be contestant for the show. That would be interesting. <laughs> That's very, very interesting. Uh, let's see. Competition. Uh, let's see. On November 26, 1999, Ricky's World Famous Sauce offered $10,000 to the first person who could score 1 million points on Frogger or $1,000 for a new world record prior to January 1st of 2000. On March 25th, 2005, Robert Marushik offered $1,000 for being the fictitious world record of 860,630 points as set by George Cassandra in the episode of Seinfeld or $250 for a new world record by the end of that year. On December 1st, 2006, John Cunningham offered $250 for exceeding the same fictitious world record score by February 28th, 2007. No one was ever able to achieve any of the bounties, and these scores were surpassed only after the bounties had all expired. The first score to have been verified as having beaten the fictional Constanza Seinfeld score of 860,630 points was set by Pat Lafay on December 22nd, 2009 with 896,980 points. This was surpassed by Michael Smith of Springfield, Virginia with a score of 970,440 points on July 15th, 2012. The current Frogger World Record holder is Pat Lafay of Westport, Connecticut. Uh, on August 15, 2017, he scored 1,029,990 points, becoming the first and only person to ever break 1 million points on an original arcade machine. Wow. <laughs> That's interesting. That's very, very interesting, but yeah. I, I wish I had known about that. Never, not that I was ever that good at it, but let's move, let's move right along. Uh, let's see. My personal experiences with the game. This game was sneaky popular for a while, but after a little bit of time, I'd say probably going into 1982, the popularity started to wane. Uh, the game gets really hard in the later stages, and I just didn't have the patience to get good at it as I could have. I did like the Parker Brothers version of the 2600 game more, although I was and still am not quite sure why. It tested your patience and planning abilities to their limits almost as much as your reaction times. That's for sure. I mean, I knew some people who were really good at Frogger. You know, being good at Frogger is like what? I'd say probably, what, 50,000 points and up, and you're an expert? Um, but yeah, I mean, I was never that good. I could get to like, what, 15, 16,000 before the game would just start overwhelming me, and I would start t trying to take chances, and yeah, didn't work out too well. But, you know, that's just me. And that's Frogger in a nutshell, so... Or should I say Frogger on a lily pad? Nah, I won't say that. Eh, then again, I did. Um, <laughs> any thoughts, questions, comments? How good would you... How good were you at this game back in the day? You know, let me know. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay. From there, let's go on to Arcade Review.
Arcade Review. The Arcade in Brighton. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, I did write this review quite a bit ago. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's over two years old when I wrote this review. So I'll try and um, add in my current thoughts as to, you know, along with the thoughts I had when I wrote this. So here we go. Uh, as always, uh, each... Uh, arcade that I go to or have been to, I rate on five criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, and value. Uh, location. Uh, where is it? Is it easy to get to? Is it close to major streets or uh, major highways or interstates? Um, is there plenty of parking there? Is there, you know, or do you have to, like, you know, park elsewhere and go to the place? Things like that. Uh, selection. Uh, how many games do they have? You know, what's the cross-section? Meaning, do they rely heavily on the classics? Or, or is it mostly modern games? Or is it a balance of both? Um, you know, things like that. Uh, ambiance. Uh, is there... Um, do they have music playing over the PA? Do they have... Um, you know, art or neon signage or other things to draw the eye, you know, that actually help you with your arc, not help you, but make the arcade experience better. Um, how about the staff? Do, are they helpful? You know, do they care or they just kind of stand around looking at their phones and collecting a paycheck? You know, things like that. Uh, functionality. How do the games look? How do the games play? Um, when a machine goes down, how long do they, does it take for them to fix it? Um, and, you know, things like that. Um, like I said, I can give high marks for uh, games that look good, but actually I find that I will give higher marks for games that play good. You know, they can be in the most beat-up, ratty, broken-down cabinets, but if the controls are perfect and the gameplay is excellent, yeah. You know, I don't care about how something looks. I'd rather, I'm more concerned about how it plays, but looks do enter into my rating system here. Uh, and the last one, of course, is value. Um, let's see how many, I mean, what kind of, uh, how do you play, how do you pay for these games? Do they run off quarters? Do they run off tokens? Uh, do you have the free play option and things like that? Um, when with the free play option I tend to give high marks because you know you basically could just pay one fee and stay in the arcade as long as you like and play as many games as you want until your arms fall off so you know I usually give high marks for that um, another one I will give average marks to if they run off quarters but they run but they don't charge like 50 cents to play like Donkey Kong or something um, and of course I start I start with an average value of five, and depending on how the establishment, um, how the establishment, uh, how you pay for, how do you pay for their games, you know, it can go up and down from there. So, uh, you take all these together. Um, these are all rated one to ten, with half points coming into play. Uh, you take the all the add all these up, divide it by five, and you get a final score. So, let's get right on to it. Location. I'll give this a 7. I probably should give it a little bit more, but I think 7 is kind of fair. Uh, it's fairly easy to get to. It's on the east side 
of the town of Brighton on the main drag through town, which is Grand River Avenue. Uh, it's close to both Interstate 96 and U.S. Highway 23, uh, both major thoroughfares in this area. Uh, despite the location, the standalone store it resides in is fairly small and, in my opinion, would do much better business if they either had a bigger building or is located a little bit closer to downtown Brighton where most of the restaurants and shopping are. Um, and I maintain that to this day. Um, it's a pretty good location and, you know, but it's way on the east side of town uh, when you cross over US 23. Um, if it was on the other side of 23, I think it would have a little bit better business because it'd be closer to restaurants and things like that. I mean, even if they weren't in the downtown area, quote-unquote, because Brighton is a small town, but if they were a little bit closer to the central area of Brighton, you know, I think they would be doing better business. <laughs> like I've always said, they need a bigger building yesterday. Um as many machines as they have in there they would have so many more if they had a larger uh, store space but that's just me uh selection i'll give that a flat out nine um when i first came went in there this place had a whole lot of promise but the abundance of non-functioning machines and the token system they were using at that time let it down um, as it turns out, I think I started going there shortly after it opened, and I think they were just trying to drum up some business. Um, in the years since then, the place has made a complete turnaround. They have games for almost literally every taste. Uh, if you want to rock it old school, there are at least 50 machines to tickle your fancy. Uh, is pinball more your speed? They have somewhere between 20 and 30 machines there for you to test your skill, and they get the newest machines all the time. Um, I don't think they got the Led Zeppelin machine yet, but they got, um, oh goodness, what's the last one they got? They didn't get the Guns N' Roses one either. Um, I think they've kind of put a, a halt on buying, uh, new pinball machines because, um, you know, with the pandemic that's been going on for the last year, they haven't, uh, had any sort of major business. I mean, they were shut down for, oh goodness, I want to say, what? at least five and a half to six months before they started reopening uh, under, you know, uh, capacity restrictions and so forth, which is still going on to this day, although the restrictions are slowly being relaxed. But yeah, I mean, but back when they were, you know, kicking butt and taking names, they had, they were getting in all the new machines, like, almost immediately. Uh, when I wrote this uh, review back in uh, March of 2019 uh they had just gotten the monsters le pinball machine which had just come out and that's the way they were rolling i think it would only be like maybe like a month or so before they would get the new machines um this place is nowhere near as big as fun spot or galloping ghost arcade which are the gold standard for arcades not only in this country but probably on this planet um with galloping ghost being the biggest i think the number of machines is up past the 850 mark now somewhere around there because god bless doc mac he never stopped uh putting new machines in the uh arcade even though they couldn't have people in there for a while but they keep doing that but 
like I said, the Arcade and Brighton is nowhere near as big as these guys, but they punch above their weight class for sure. Uh, let's see, ambiance. I'll give, I'll give that a 7.5. Um, there are things, interesting things to look at that adorn the walls if you take your eyes away from playing the machines long enough to notice. Uh, they have classic pinball back glasses, um, neon signs, and various paraphernalia all around. Uh, the games, of course, are the star of the show in this place, but these objects placed here and there are a nice touch, and it helps. Uh, functionality, I give that an 8. Um, <laughs> if I had reviewed this uh, arcade when I first went to it back in, what, 20... what, 2015 when I went, when I first went... Uh, I would probably give in this like a 4 or something like that. I mean, a really low rating. But I give it an 8 now. Um, the floor, when I first visited this place, like I said, when I did the review, the floor was strewn with uh, non-functioning machines. Uh, now, at least 85 to 90% of the machines work and work correctly. But there are some machines that could use a little TLC uh, like their Super Pac-Man machine, um, and it does take quite a bit to um, get their games fixed, although with um, with their Robotron machine, I, they only it only took a month for them to fix that machine from the last time I played it, which is actually really good. Uh, the games that work correctly are an absolute joy to play, no matter what it is. And um, whoever they have uh, either on retainer or they take their machines to a technician or whatever they do, whoever's fixing their machines, you know, I don't think they're making enough money off of this because they're doing really good work. Uh, and finally, uh, at value, I give it a 9. Uh, although I think I'm going to have to... Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Well... Let's, well, you know what, I was thinking about lowering it, but I'll keep it at a 9 for now. I could probably lower it to an 8, and I would still be fair about it, but um, when I first went here, they were using tokens for all their games, and every game required two of them, which kind of stuck in my craw, because you could only buy like $20 of tokens at a time. There were no other uh, rates, which is unfortunate. I mean, I understood the business model at the time when, when I rated this place after going there, and I did say that they need to do a flat rate free play option. Um, and imagine my surprise when I went there the second time thinking to play some games and get rid of the tokens that I took home from the first visit only to find out that they actually adopted a free play model. Uh, the shame of it was that I was in between paychecks and I was flat broke at the time. Because, yeah, I would have in immediately paid $15 to play all these games and play as much as I did. And I did do so, um, like I think, like a month later or something. That's how much of a financial tightrope I was on back then. Um, when I started going there semi-regularly, they had a tier system depending on the day. Uh, they charge $20 for Fridays, $15 for Saturdays, and $10 for Sundays. Uh, their operation uh, hours were short. On Sundays, it was only like 2 p.m. to 8 p.m., compared with 2 p.m. to midnight on Fridays and Saturdays, hence the lower price. Um, they had lowered the price of Fridays to $15 to go along with their Saturdays, which was just pre-pandemic. Um, and that showed that they were listening to their patrons and they were doing really good business. Um, I don't think uh, 
they um, had to jack their rates back up because of the pandemic. Now it's $20 for all three days, you know, which there's part of me that kind of, you know, balks a little bit at it. But I also understand that they had been closed for almost six months and they're trying to make some money back. I get it. Um, I'm hoping they don't keep the prices there once the pandemic has been reduced to a point where everybody can pretty much go out and, you know, the majority of our populace is uh, vaccinated, so we don't have to worry about, you know, possibly spreading a uh, airborne disease and things like that. But we'll see. I'm hoping that you can. I'm hoping that they do that. Um, let's see. Uh, you can also order food from nearby places so that you can sit at the tables upstairs and eat before playing some more. Um, they do give you a wristband on entry so that you, if you have to leave, you can leave and come back on that same day. Um, you can also get have a private party there, which can be expensive. I think it's like, what What did they say? The, at the time of writing this article, it's like $500 for two hours, you know. Um but it you know that's really expensive but it's also cool because you know the kids and the the adults get full run of the arcade um i did see kids birthday parties uh almost every time i'd gone there pre-pandemic and the kids just loved it you know think about it cake presents and unlimited video games what's not to love about that um okay so you add all that add all those scores together and you get a total score, of, an average score of 8.1. Uh, that's the second highest rated arcade in uh, this segment, with Milford Rec being, I think, what, an 8.3? But yeah. Um, you could do a whole lot worse than this place and for more money. Uh, I think this place is the epitome of the term more bang for your buck, although that's been lessened recently because they had to jack their prices back up. It's a great place to go by yourself, take your kids, um, or take a date if he or she is into video games and pinball. It's not too expensive, and you only run into value issues if you're a video game expert. And I'm pretty good at video games, but, you know, back when they had the tiered pricing, the $10 Sundays alleviated that. You know, because, you know, if I could easily spend 5 to $10 in an arcade you know, if I'm so inclined. So, you know, with the value of it uh, lowered because, you know, now you're paying $20 for any of the three days the arcade is open, you know, but still, it's a really good value because you'd stay there as long as you like and play as long as you want to. You know, on average, when I go there, I stay there at least three hours. So, you know, if you're doing it, you know, by the hour, it's like, at that point, it's like, what, uh, like, um, what, six, yeah, about six, you know, about 670 per hour, which is, works out pretty well, but either way, you know, it's still at $20 a day, it's still not a bad value as long as, you know, you just try to get as much as you can out of the place, but yeah, that's the arcade in Brighton, and that's my review of it. Um, as a matter of fact, I found out that there is a, a pinball arcade, which is close to that location. I'm going to find out about that place. Stay tuned. Um, if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, if you live in the greater Detroit area and you go to the arcade in Brighton, hey, 
you know, shout me out, you know, let me know what you think, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, and finally, we're going to go into an on-the-road segment, so get in, sit down, buckle up, shut up, hang on. Hey folks, Brian here, and I'm on the road once again. I was listening to an on-the-road segment that came up on my music player, which is on shuffle, and I usually listen to them to sort of see where I can improve as far as uh, putting these segments out. Um... Full disclosure, I've been podcasting for almost 10 years now, and even though my own podcast has only been in existence for a little more than a year, I've been getting together with two or three other guys and doing a Dungeons & Dragons podcast, and that's been going since 2010. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of an old-handed podcasting, but at the same time, you always can improve. You can always get better. So that's the reason why I listen to previous episodes of this podcast and when my original podcast with my co-hosts, when that drops, I always listen listen to it just to make sure the sound quality is decent because I also do the editing for these podcasts and just to see, you know, where I can get better as far as, you know, my podcasting style goes. But anyway, that's not what I was talking about. Um, I remembered I was listening to a podcast, listen to an on the road segment, which will by this time, by the time you hear this, it will be embedded in episode 18, which is sitting on my hard drive right now, waiting for me to edit it and release it on Anchor. Um, But I was listening to it, and I was talking about taking my son to the arcade um, because I had uh, gone to the arcade in Brighton with my godson, and I was talking about taking when to take my son and I realized in the middle of listening to that segment that you know my son has already had uh his first experience with video games um this happened probably about two weeks ago I think um I was messing around on emulation I was playing uh, Mega Mania by Activision. And, you know, I'm just playing it and, you know, trying to get back to where I was with that game because back in the day, I could put up 
a hundred thousand on that game without even breaking a sweat. So, you know, I'm playing it, and, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm playing it and playing it and playing it. And my son comes bouncing into the bedroom where I was. And he's like, he's like, Daddy, what's that? I said, this is a video game. He's like, video game? I'm like, yes. He's like, can I play? I said, okay, after I get done with this game, then you can play. And he was watching me play, and he was noticing the colors of the enemies and what they looked like. Uh, the first stage are these saucers, these blocky saucers that come out from the left of the screen and go to the right, and you're shooting at them and so forth. Um, he called those hamburgers. Because <laughs> to him, they look like hamburgers, I guess. Um, then the next next screen was these yellow enemies that come down in this kind of mildly unpredictable uh, movement pattern. And he said, you know, he, he said, yeah, the yellow guys. I said, that's right. And I have, you know, I have to get him. He's like, get him, daddy. <laughs> it was so cute. Um, so, you know, I go through the game. I get maybe to the fifth screen um, just before the asteroids screen, before the whole thing resets and it's you know, the enemies move faster and, you know, they shoot more and blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, I, you know, finished the game and I said, okay, Marcus. And I showed him how to play it. I mean, it's fairly easy. I gave him the controller, you know, and I'll be darned if he didn't get off the first stage by the time he played his second or third game. I mean, he wasn't, I can't, you know, of course he's five years old, so I can't critique his style. <laughs> you know, that would be unfair. You know, as especially being his father, it would be unfair for you to critique it. But basically on the first stage, all he would do is move all the way over to the left corner and shoot the enemies as they came, as they scrolled onto the screen from the left side. And I was really surprised he got through the first first screen. And of course the second the second wave which like I said are these uh yellow enemies that move in this particular pattern um he got a little overwhelmed by it because the movement is constant. And, you know, he got a little overwhelmed by it, and it's okay, you know. And the funny part was is that, you know, after we got done playing, of course, the next day he wanted wanted to play the game with me. And, you know, I basically told him, I said, no. And then, he, no, well, he wanted to play by himself. I said, no, you only can play when Daddy plays. And, I mean... God forbid that my son goes down the road that I went, starting at the age of, what, eight years old? Six, no, I say, sorry, six years old. And, you know, getting hooked with pinball, and then the video game addiction just continued from there. 
especially once I found out once again that my local mall had an arcade. That's when things really <laughs> took off for me, you know, in a positive and also looking back on it in a negative fashion. But that's neither here nor there. I'm going to talk about that in an upcoming segment in an upcoming show. Stay tuned. Um, so, you know, so he loves playing this game. Actually, there was one time I let him use my computers to watch videos on YouTube. And one time he actually figured out how to open up the emulator. Because one day, you know, I come home from work and there he is sitting on my bed playing Mega Mania. And I'm like, Marcus, how did you do that? And he said, he said in his way that he opened it, you know, he found, he clicked on an icon and it opened up. And somehow he, well, actually, now I think about it when the particular emulator I use is Stella. And of course it has the Atari logo when you, you when it's on, you know, your desktop which is where I put stuff. So I think he just clicked on that thing and it automatically, uh, it goes to the last game you played, which of course was Mega Mania, and he figured out how to open it. (laughs) And he was playing it. And of course, you know, I had to tell him, no, you only can play games when daddy plays. You can't, no, you can't play by yourself because I'm not raising another arcade addict because I know where that goes and where you wind up. So anyway, I'm going to pause this right here because I'm back at the lab. I just have to turn in stuff and get back on the road to start my second run. So I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. So it's just really, really interesting seeing him. He figured out that game and he figured out a way to be successful at the game that I never thought of. I mean, I mean I've been playing Mega Mania. I've I played that game when it first came out. Um I don't know why it wasn't a permanent part of my game collection because I always loved that game. You know, I mean basically it's Activision's version of um Astro Fighter. Either Astro Fighter or Astro Blaster, either one. So he you know he he's doing pretty well at it. I'm I'm I was impressed. I mean especially when he actually somehow some way he got past the second stage and got into the third one. And you know, he's calling out the shapes, he's calling out the uh, colors, you know, like he calls like one of them eyeballs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's one of those things that just makes me proud as a video game player and an arcade addict from pretty much the beginning to see my son do these things and figure things out and actually be good good at stuff. I mean, I thought I was going to have to start him off on something like really, really simple. And here he is playing Mega Mania, which is, it starts off easy enough, but yeah, it gets really tough. I mean, I still haven't made it through the 
um, second wave of enemies yet. You know, I usually get to about, hmm, I'd say probably the, trying to think, I think each stage of enemies, I think is like six waves. So I get to like maybe wave eight, you know, or something like that, or wave eight or wave nine. And it's just one of those things where, you know, yeah, it gets tougher and tougher as you go along. So I haven't gotten through that yet. I mean, that's why my my high score is like somewhere in like the 100 to 120,000 range, somewhere in there. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's pretty dang awesome to see my son figure these games out. It really, really is. And I'm just like, I'm a little blown away because I wasn't like this at age five. I mean, of course, you know, technology is different now than it was when I was five years old back in, what, 1974? Um, technology was radically different. Um, the only things that were really around in those days were games like, uh, you know, pinball. I mean, of course, Pong was out, but it had only been out for a couple of years. You know, I mean, I should have known better when I gave my son one of, uh, my old, uh, cell phones and we put a bunch of, uh, um, children's apps on it. And I should have known when one day he actually got a hold of my phone and he was actually using it because he because he's really good at observing and then figuring stuff out from what he observes. I mean, I'm I was blown away when I saw him pick up uh, a Samsung Galaxy Three that a friend of ours gave us, and we gave it to him to you know. Uh, play up, you know, to use educational apps on. That's how he learned his numbers. That's how he learned his shapes. That's how he learned his colors. And I shouldn't be all that shocked <laughs> that he comes along and he plays a video game for the Atari 2600 that comes out in 1982. Now, I'm sure there are those out there going to say, well, of course, Brian, the game is so simplistic. Why don't you put them on the, put them on the sticks on uh, Call of Duty 4 or something like that. See how really he does. Dude, it's, he's five years old. I'm not putting him behind the controls of a truly complex and visually overwhelming video game. I mean, if I really wanted to be... I won't say mean, but I, if I really wanted to do that, I'd put him on a game like Defender <laughs> and let him let him drown at that game for a while. I was drowning at Defender when it came out in 80 when I was only 12 years old, or excuse me, 11 years old. Um, I didn't know what was going on when I was playing that game at 11. You know, um, I'm trying to remember when I actually started actually being decent at Defender. I think it was like 1980, late 81 going into 82 when I really started getting decent at it. Um, but anyway, so 
yeah, it's a 2600 game. Yeah, it's quote unquote simple, but it's not as simple as some games I could have put him on. And I'm just, I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm proud. I'm proud that he's got the, got the talent. <laughs> you know, I mean, this doesn't bode well for me when he gets to be like, say, oh, what? 10, <laughs> 9, 10 years old, because that's when it started for me uh, for video games. You know, I was literally nine years old when, you know, I discovered the arcade at the mall and my life changed forever. <laughs> Just like when I was, what, um, eight years old when I first saw Star Wars in 77 and my life changed forever then too because I was all about it, you know, but yeah, I mean, I see my son really, he's going to probably, I'm going to try to make sure he doesn't walk my line to quote, to quote from uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. I don't want to see that because and I'll get into it in a story time in a future episode. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. It's somewhere in the 20s. I think it's like episode 22 or 23 or maybe even 24, somewhere in there. But I'm going to talk about, you know, the bad sides of being an arcade addict. And I'm going to save all of my thoughts for that, you know, for that time. But... I don't want to see him walk my line. Not at all. Um, as much fun as I had playing games in arcades and, you know, making friends and, you know, um, all that, there, it, there was a downside to it. And the downside was fairly, fairly uh, large. And I'll just leave it at that. But... I don't want him to be, it's, I already see him imitating me, and he's not going to understand what I'm saying, but the, the first day he comes to me and says, I want to be like you, daddy, I'm going to be like, no, be like you, be better than me, don't be me, <laughs> don't be me, be better than me, you know, find your path. Don't just don't see what I'm doing and think that's the best thing to do because it might be the best thing to do for me. It may not be the best thing to do for you. And well, we'll see if he listens to that because <laughs> he's already got a stubborn streak a mile wide and he comes by that honestly <laughs> by both his mother and me. So um, as it turns out, though, the apple don't fall too far from the tree. <laughs> You know, not only does he have a, already a penchant for video gaming, he's, I would say he's probably got the, uh, the wherewithal to actually be decent at them at five years old. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, oh boy, <laughs> I'm going to cultivate it. I'm going to say, hey. These are for having fun and for having fun with your friends or with me 
or maybe or even with your mom but don't make this the be-all end-all please don't because it can lead to some not so great things so anyway um and it's like I've already said in previous episodes of I'm on the road my godson you know it's pretty cool watching him play these games and figure them out you know you know like I said like I've already said he's 16 years old now and he's autistic and he's you know just watching him figure it out it's it's really cool to watch I mean that's sort of I guess a precursor if I've already if I hadn't already seen it I would have seen that as a precursor to my own son so yeah I mean yeah there's a part of me that is proud is all get out you know I'm not gonna lie about it you know I'm proud you know my son is going to probably be a halfway decent gamer I mean the landscape of gaming has changed dramatically over the last what are we talking what uh, well if we start with the, the true rise of video games in 1978 with Space Invaders that's 41 years now and over the 40 years technology has just gotten better and gotten better faster you know it puts me kind of in it puts it just put it just brings to mind a uh quote from episode of star trek spacey the one with where kirk meets khan for the first time where khan basically says all you know technology has you know, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, because I can't remember the direct quote, but basically he says technology has grown by leaps and bounds over the years since my time, but how little man has changed himself. And that's pretty true. You know, we as a species, to get up on my soapbox, we as a species, we still have, even though we've progressed a little bit, over the last 100, 200 years or so, but we have so far to go as a species. You know, I'm not talking race, I'm not talking creed, I'm not talking color, I'm not talking religion, I'm talking human beings. All, what, what's the population now? Up over 7 billion of us? You know, we, we are the ones who have to evolve now. Uh, technology is a wonderful tool, but I'm sorry, but a lot of people, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, use it as a crutch. I personally use it as a tool. You know, I am not, I do not have my face stuck in my phone at every opportunity to check up on social media aside from going on Facebook to check on you know the podcast catch up with people that I know and people you know and members of my family and so forth that's what I use it for it's a tool you know it's not something that 
I tie into my existence, as a lot of people do, and especially a lot of a lot of people in the last couple of generations. I mean, I had my my time doing that when I had a home computer from you know 1987 before 1987 actually before I got my own because I was using uh, my friends computers when I could and when they would let me of course I um you know I was you know I was always interested in computers and I should have done something with that in regard to my life back then, but I was more just, I was more into my enjoyment and entertainment using those things, you know, leading to games and so forth like that. I mean, that's why I was constantly hanging out in arcades, you know, and spending what little money that I had, you know, feeding that Jones, that addiction, you know, um, but as I've said, you know, but I also realize, you know, it was funny because it's something that my mother and I talked about for the longest time. I mean, my mom really, I won't say she was a technophobe, but she had, she had great reluctance when it came to computers. It was only, and I say this regrettably, but it was only towards the end of her life that she even started using an email account on a regular basis. You know? I mean, and I was like, and I was like, Mom, you know, you, you and I can keep up with each other a lot easier this way because I'm always you know, messing around online. And she's like, well, that's what the telephone's for. But that's her generation. You know, my mom was born in the 30s. She grew up in the 50s. She came of age in the 60s. You know, she had her first child at 63, her second child at 68. Um, you know, and it was a different, it was a much different time, you know. And it was... You know, and it was just one of those things where it's like, Mom, that's all you need to do. You know, you know, and it, it was only towards the... I didn't even know she had an email account until after she had passed away, which is kind of messed up, you know, in, in a way. I mean, it really is. It's, it's kind of messed up because I was like, you know what? We could have kept in touch with each other a lot better. And unfortunately, that's, that's on me. I was a terrible son when I was in my 20s. I was. And, I mean, I'm not going to shy away from taking that responsibility. But anyway, um, I'm out of stop, so I'll be back. Okay, I'm back. But anyway, um, enough maudlin reflection. Um... And it's just one of those things that you see if you're a parent. It's like you see your child 
and you could see how so easily they can walk your line. Um, and with some parents, that's okay, but not with me. You know, I want my son not to have to go through some of the things I went through in life. Now, it may happen anyway, but at the same time, I'm going to do what I can to make sure that he had a better life than I did. And, well, you know, I'm doing my best to make sure that happens, but right now, with the way things have gone over the last year, it hasn't been very uh, successful. But I'm, that doesn't mean I'm not going to stop trying, though, because he deserves that. You know, like I said, I just don't want him to go through some of the things I went through, you know, and hopefully he doesn't have to and his life will be better than mine. It, that's, I would think, for most parents, I think that would be a, a fairly laudable goal. Just for that, you know, just to see that your kid doesn't have to struggle the way you had to struggle. You know, and let's hope that doesn't, let's hope that that does not have to happen for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as gaming goes, yeah, I mean, I could, I see him, I mean, unfortunately, I think by the time, as much as I don't want it to happen, by the time he becomes, a, he gets old enough to, you know, you know, I, gaming's going to be very, very different by the time he comes of age. I'm very sure of that. I'm hoping that, you know, arcades still exist in some form or another by the time he gets to be in his teens. But, I mean, let's be realistic about it. Um, I mean, with the exception of, like, you know, a place like Galloping Ghost or a fun spot in New Hampshire and, you know, some other places, the, the big arcades, the big guns, if you will. You know, those places, as long as they can still drum up a business. And the good thing about the, you know, places like Galloping Ghost is that, you know, they know that they are not only a part of history, but I think they know, or Doc Mack knows, who's, you know, the owner, you know, who more or less, in some ways, owns the town of Brookfield. <laughs> Um, uh, I think he knows that now that, of course, he has, you know, he has the title of world's largest arcade, and as of this recording, uh, October 10th, 2019, uh, Galloping Ghost is at, what, 735 machines? I'm just like, geez, I gotta go there before... You know, it gets so big that I have to take a week's vacation just to go there and play, you know, all the games I want to play. <laughs> you know, but either way, 
Um, I think he realizes that now he's, now that he has an arcade of such size and stature, that he's a part of history. Um, I want to get a hold of him and interview him for the podcast because I really want to know, you know, more or less what he's thinking or what, you know, what got him to do this kind of thing. You know, I really want to pick his brain and, you know, find out. Um, but yeah, that's something I really want to do. As a matter of fact, I think when I get home from work tonight, um, I'm going to, uh, private message him on Facebook and ask him if he'll, uh, do like, uh, an interview slash conversation, you know, with me. And if he does, and if he, you know, is, uh, if he's about it, yeah, I will record it, edit it, put it up on, put it up for you guys to listen to. I mean, just like I'm going to talk to Mark, that's going to happen soon. Matter of fact, I got to get a hold of him, you know, and ask him when's a good time to get together, you know, where we could take a couple of hours and just kind of talk about not only, you know, our past history, but also, you know, where things are in our respective lives and so forth, you know, just sort of catch up with each other and go from there. Um, I mean, I want to talk to, you know, Greg Hansen. I want to talk to Jack Danger. And, you know, I'm going to kind of get these guys one by one and hopefully we can, uh, we can certainly, uh, bring it to you, the listener, and we'll see what happens from there. So, okay, I'm going to cut this off here because I need to get through the rest of this day and, um, like I said, by the time you hear this, will probably be a couple of months into the future, at least a couple months, probably like three or four months into the future, um, going, probably going into 2020, because uh, I'm trying to do these uh, on-the-road segments in chronological order as I record them. Um, the last one that's going to be on the podcast will be attached to episode 18. That was from last September. So... But the thing is, is that uh, there, you know, there are going to be long periods where I wasn't able to record from the road um, because going into December, that's when things really took a bad turn for me on the financial and employment front. And from what December 2018 until well into March of 2019. Uh, I was out of a job and I basically had to, um, live off of credit cards while I was scrambling and scrambling and scrambling, trying to find work. And unfortunately the absolute worst time to lose a job is right around Christmas time because no one's going to talk about hiring until well after the new year is done, which is what happened. So, anyway, um, like I said, this one, you'll, you'll hear this one eventually, but yeah, it's probably going to be a while. It's probably going to be at least two or three months until 
this is attached to a uh, an episode. So anyway, um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop it here, and uh, we're going to I'm going to focus on getting through this day at work, and then I'm gonna do some things pertaining to the podcast. Um, tonight and also tomorrow probably to i'll probably have episode 18 up on anchor by this coming friday which is the 11th so you know it should be up then <laughs> by the time like, i don't know why i'm even saying this because by the time you hear this it's going to be up several months later but anyway so anyway this is brian saying have fun good gaming au revoir this has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.